Father in heaven, we are grateful um, to have life and breath this morning with all that's going around in our world, uh, in our own country, even in our own city. Um, we are coming as beggars, pleading with you for mercy, uh, asking that you would show us more of who you are, of your wisdom, of your grace, of the things that if we've been around the story of Jesus, we know to be true in our heads and yet in our hearts, sometimes it's hard to truly believe it. And so this morning we pray that you would move what for some of us can be intellectual, purely and only. Would you move that into every part of us that it would seep down into our souls? And if there's any of us this morning who are skeptical, who are asking questions, help us to honestly ask these questions of you. And would you meet us in our doubts? And Holy Spirit, would you give us faith? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome back to Tuesday Morning Bible Study. We didn't meet last week because of spring break. I know for some of you that doesn't affect you at all. Others of you it does affect, and it affects me in particular because uh, I have little kids who are out of school last week. And uh, we went to the North Georgia mountains where our family has a lake house, uh, right at the start of the Appalachian Trail. If you've never been out to the Appalachians, it is beautiful. Uh, we went up to Highlands, North Carolina at one point. Uh, so if you've never been out there, it is absolutely stunning. And for us this time, instead of flying, we drove. We drove the whole way uh, from Dallas all the way to North Georgia and then up to North Carolina. So we had a lot of car time, which is a lot of good family time if you've got three little kids. Uh, it's a lot of good uh, listening to music time and podcast time. And so there were times when we would let the kids watch a movie and my wife and I would listen to a podcast. And then other times we were listening to music together. We love to do that as a family. Some of you know I love music. And, and one of the things that we uh, got to listen to was a new album. One of the things I love more than music is new music. I love listening to a new music and picking it apart. I, I listen to music in a, in a kind of a strange way. I enjoy it by picking apart, um, almost intellectually, uh, listening for the little parts and uh, what's, what's going on. And I love the craft of songwriting. And one of the songwriters that my wife and I love and have loved for a long time is a guy named Ben Rector. And my wife actually knew Ben uh, back when they were both on staff at Canacuck and We've been kind of following his career, and he's, he's actually done quite well, which is really fun to see. And he just came out with a new album called The Joy of Music. And to spare all the details behind the album, I, I thought what I would do to, to begin, because I think it's actually really appropriate, is, is read um, just a portion of the lyrics of one of the songs. One of the things that Ben does a lot in his songwriting is he writes a lot about nostalgia, a lot about looking back on what life was like as a kid and comparing that to what life is like now. For, for a lot of people, as we look back on what life is like as a kid, there's a lot of innocence as children that we have. A, a lot of looking at the world through kind of rosy colored glasses, not yet seeing the reality of the harshness of the world that we live in, and, and the difficulty of depravity of people in our lives and even in ourselves, right? And he has a song in this album called Heroes, and it's looking back on the old heroes that he had as a kid and comparing the vision of those heroes and who he thought they were to who they really are and being very disappointed in the outcome. I wonder if you've ever had anyone that you've ever looked up to who let you down. And what was that like for you? And for some of you, maybe that wasn't just as a kid, maybe that was just recent even in adulthood, someone that you always looked up to, someone that was one of your heroes, that you discovered the real person, it really began to shake, not just your view of them, 
but your view of humanity. And in particular, when those heroes are Christians, when those heroes are people of faith and leaders in the church, that can not only shake your view of them, but it can shake your faith as well. I want you to listen just briefly to some of the lyrics of Heroes by Ben Rector. I'll start with the chorus. He says, I miss my old heroes. I had to give them all away. I miss my old heroes. God, I wish they could have stayed. Because it turns out the hardest part of growing up is not getting old. It's learning how the real world goes. And I want to read just four lines from one of his verses. And I wonder if this strikes any of you in your own stories as you think about your heroes, particularly in the church, if you've grown up around Christianity. He said, I miss my Bible study leader. Had all the answers for living in a big, bad world. Don't know if he still talks to Jesus, but his wife's remarried now, and I think he sells garage doors. And do you hear what's behind all of that? As a kid, think about as a kid, maybe as a youth group kid, looking up to this Bible study leader. Like, they're, man, they're a giant. And only into adulthood to learn that they're probably just like anybody else, broken. And the story, if it's a true story, of this particular Bible study leader is divorce and pain and heartache. And what does that do to your view of people? And in particularly, when we're talking about leaders and heroes in the church, what does that do to your faith? I remember in college, to Texas A&M University, and it was just a year into my time at Texas A&M that our pastor um, had an affair, it left his family. And for the next several years while I was at that church, I spent a lot of time ministering and meeting with his sons who were reeling from not just losing the pastor of this church, but for them, they lost a relationship with their father. Heroes, parents, for some of you it's a father. For others of you, maybe like Ben Rector, it's a Bible study leader. Maybe for like me, it was a pastor. Who are those people that you've looked up to who only eventually let you down. It's one of the things that we see is we really read the Bible with an honest view. We see that the Bible does not shy away with honesty about the heroes that we look up to in the Bible. For some of you grown up around church, you've grown up around these stories of these Bible characters. And when you really read about them though in the Bible, you come to realize that they were really messed up <laughs> and really broken. And the challenge for us today is we look at the unlikely hero of a judge named Jephthah. When we look at his story, we're going to be confronted with this idea of here's this man that God raised up to once again deliver his people. And yet as we look at his story, it is completely devastating in the end. And we're going to be left with a tension in ourselves. What do we do with that? And what I want you to begin to press into this morning is that same tension that you're going to feel between seeing a man who God used to deliver his people and seeing just how wicked he was in the end. Just how foolish. That tension in that place is the same kind of tension that you and I should hold with the gospel of Jesus Christ. How would God, by his grace, love a bunch of sinners like you and me? So the first thing I want you to know about Jephthah, I want you to know that he was a nobody. I want you to look with me, Judges 11 is where we're going to begin the story of Jephthah. 
The first thing I want you to know about him, he was a nobody, an unlikely hero. Judges 11 verses 1 through 3 is where we're going to start. We're told that Jephthah was a Gileadite, and he was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. So right there in just one verse, we learn a lot about Jephthah, an unlikely judge, an unlikely hero. I think of uh, Hamilton, if any of you have seen the musical, and I really had a hard time not, I know I'm being recorded right now, but I mean this in the truest sense of the word. I had a hard time not titling this very first point, Jephthah was a bastard, because that's exactly what he was. And if you've seen the musical Hamilton, uh, there's that line that says, how could a bastard son of a whore? That's exactly (laughs) who Jephthah was. An unlikely hero whose background was an illimit, he was an illegitimate child, the son of a prostitute. His father had an affair with a prostitute, and that's why he exists. Already we see the way that God enters into human depravity to raise up deliverance. God orchestrating and working through even the, the worst possible circumstances. Here's Jephthah. A nobody, but it doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 2 Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So, what's happening here? Jephthah is being raised, at least, by his real dad. But of course, his real dad is having sons with his wife. And they're like, hey, we don't think you should get anything. Like, you don't belong to this family. Can you see the tension that would exist between these boys? With your background, where you came from, you're an embarrassment to our family. We want nothing to do with you, and you deserve no part, not only our family now, but you deserve no part of the inheritance. So they drove him out. He's a nobody. Someone with a a marked past, who his family didn't even want. Verse three, then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And love, I love this, and worthless fellows. How often have you used that kind of language? You're a worthless fellow. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out to him. Literally, this word um, that it's being translated in this idea of worthless fellows is... um, some, some translations say adventurers. Some translations say scoundrels. Some say lawless men. Some say outlaws. So, so what are we to do with this? Well, Jephthah, again, an illegitimate son of a prostitute, driven out by his family, goes into the wilderness and basically starts a gang, a gang of outlaws. And he's a mighty warrior. Uh, some, some translators and, and commentators even imagine Jephthah to, to practice guerrilla warfare. That he's got this gang of outlaws that he is now leading. Uh, attacking the countryside. Mercenaries doing what they're, whatever bidding that they have. This is the story of Jephthah. He was an outlaw. He was a nobody. He was the most unlikely hero that you could ever imagine God to raise up to be a judge to deliver his people. And yet that's his story. And what I want you to begin to think about is your own story. As you look back, all the things that have happened in your life, 
both the good and the bad, and to recognize that this is one of many stories in the Bible where God chooses to use the most unlikely people to do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. That should already begin to challenge you, not only in your view of Jephthah, but your view of God, his wisdom and his grace. Why would God choose someone like this in order to deliver his people? Well, the answer to that question not only teaches about grace, but it should challenge us as we think about wisdom. Because in the end, we're going to see that some of these character traits in his past are what God used to deliver his people. And some of these character traits are what led to his downfall. The second thing I want you to know about Jephthah. Not only was he a nobody, an outlaw, he was a faithful warrior. Again, look uh, real quick at verse 1 again. One more time. Notice what it says. The very first thing it says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. Right? He was a mighty warrior. He was known for his courage and his bravery, his skill. But he was also a faithful warrior. And we see this all over the place in chapter 11. And it couldn't come at a more important time. Verse 4. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. All right, so what's happening here? Once again, hopefully by now, if you've been with us in the story of Judges, you're getting used to this. The cycles of sin that lead to the slavery of God's people only to once again, by his grace, God delivers them. Back in chapter 10, we see that once again, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And what we've come to learn about that phrase in the book of Judges is that they were consumed with the idols of their surrounding culture. A culture that was opposed to the things of Yahweh, the things of God, the one true Lord. And they had allowed the worship of these idols to seep into their practice of Judaism. And so they, they were becoming pluralistic in their religion. They, they were becoming kind of um, almost polytheistic in a lot of ways. And you say, well, that sounds crazy, but I want you to think about it this way. Just how polytheistic is our own view of Christianity today sometimes? You say, well, no, I'm not, I don't worship multiple gods. Well, don't you? Don't I? We claim to worship God and God alone. But how often do we worship so many other things and allow these things to seep into our view of Jesus and into our view of his kingdom. That's what's happened with them. And so once again, the Ammonites, <clears throat> their enemies have made war against them. Verse five, when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Verse seven, but Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, do you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? What's going on here? Remember, Jephthah was a nobody, an outcast. He had been driven out of his family. But now, when God's people were in need, only now did they come to Jephthah and say, you know what? As it turns out, it'd be really great if you came back. We are in trouble, and we don't have anybody here who could lead us into battle. And you're a mighty warrior. We need you to come back. And so you can, you can imagine Jephthah's outrage at this point. I mean, now you want me back? 
just to get something out of me, right? And what's interesting about this is if you go back to chapter 10, they echo similar words from God. God himself, Judges 10 verses 14 and 15, God says to his people, go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen and let them save you in the time of your distress. (laughs) In other words, you're the one who's gone after all these other gods, so let's just try it out. In your time of trouble, God says, why don't you call out to them and let's see just how helpful they really are to you. You see, that's the thing about our idols is they promise us so much, but they never deliver. And whatever your idol is, whatever it tends to be, oftentimes our idols are recurring. They creep up over and over and over again. Whatever those things are, it's because they promise so much But in the end, they take everything away from us. And so God is putting them to the test. And in many ways, Jephthah's words here echo a similar thought. I thought you hated me. I thought you drove me out of my family. Yet yet now you want me back. Verse 8. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, that is why we've turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites. And notice what they say, and be our head over the inhabitants of Gilead. How does an illegitimate son of a prostitute become one of the judges of Israel? Right here. Because in their time of distress, God's people turned to him and asked for them to lead them into the battle, to be their leader. And that's exactly what Jephthah does. Verse nine, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words. Notice what it says, before the Lord at Mizpah. What we see is Jephthah with all his faults was also a faithful warrior. He was faithful to his people when he was called upon to lead them, even after all he had been through, even all they did to to cast him out, he still came to their defense. And he did this all before the Lord, right? We see, initially what we see in Jephthah is a courageous man that despite his background, had risen to the top. And with great courage and faith, led his people out into battle. We see later in verses, or in verses 21 through 28 of Judges 11 that Jephthah goes and he goes before the king of the Ammonites and he challenges the king. And just to paraphrase for you this morning, what's happening here is Jephthah goes to the king and says, why are you making war against uh, the people? Why are you making war against Israel? What claim do you have? And the king of the Ammonites says, well, you, you've taken our land <laughs> and we want it back. What I want you to notice is Jephthah's response to the king. I love it. Notice what he says. Verse 21. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all the people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated him. This is Jephthah speaking back to the king. So Israel took possession of the land who inhabited that country. Notice what he said. The Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel. Verse 23, so then the Lord, the God of Israel, dispossessed the Amorites 
from before his people Israel. And are you to take possession of them? Will you not possess what Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess and all that the Lord our God has dispossessed before us, we will possess? Are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever contend against Israel? Did he ever go to war with them? While Israel lived in Heshbon, its villages, and in Aor, and its villages, and all the cities in the banks of Aaron, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? I, therefore, have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. In other words, what's Jephthah's response to the Amorite king saying that you've taken our land and we want it back? What's his response? We didn't take the land. God gave it to us. God is the one who delivered the land to us. And so we did not sin against you, but the Lord, the one true God, delivered you into our hand and gave us the land to possess. And so why don't you, king of the Amorites, why don't you go and just ask your God to give you your land? And we'll take what the Lord, the one true God, has given us. Now you can imagine what the king of the Amorites thought about that. Well, it wasn't very convincing. So they go to battle, and they win. Why? Because once again, the Lord, the one true God, delivered his people as he had done time and time and time again. But in the midst of using Jephthah to deliver his people from the Amorite king, we see that Jephthah was not just a a mighty warrior and a faithful warrior, but he was a fool. It's the third thing I want you to know about Jephthah. Jephthah was a fool. Look with me, verse 29. This is where his story becomes very complicated. Verse 29, the spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah and Gilead. From the Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. Now Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So what does Jephthah do? As he's going into battle, he makes a vow before the Lord. And on face value, you might look at this and think, well, that seems like a faithful thing to do, to make a vow before the Lord before you go into battle. Notice what he says. He says, if you deliver us, if you give us victory in our battle, then I will sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that greets me when I get home. Now what I want you to see is what looks like faithfulness is utter foolishness. There was nothing that required Jephthah to make such a vow. If there's anything we know about God at this point, it's that he is faithful that he always delivers his people. And he doesn't require us to make an ultimatum of him in order to prove that he's faithful. And look, I think all of us have made similar vows like this, maybe not this extreme, but has there ever been a point in your life that you said, look, God, if you will just do this one thing, if you will just get me through this right here, then I will change everything. Then I will, I will clean up this part of my life. Have you ever prayed that before? 
Maybe just deep down in the back of your mind. Ever said, well, well God, if you would just get me through this hard conversation or, or, or deliver me from this financial difficulty, or you, if, if you would get me through this relational strife, uh, then I'll, I'll finally deal with whatever sin that I haven't dealt with. There's something in us that we tend to try to make deals with God. And in those moments, we fail to realize who we're actually dealing with. We're dealing with the sovereign God of the universe who is faithful and true. We need not make deals with him because he proves himself over and over and over again, not for us, but for his own sake and his own glory. Jephthah was a fool because he had an inaccurate and unbiblical view of God. You say, well, how did that happen? Well, just like all the other people of Israel, he had allowed the Canaanite view of God, the gods, to seep into his own view of God. And no longer was he imagining God and viewing God to be the God of the Bible but it was the God of the Bible plus all these other wrong thoughts that came from the Canaanite religion. That God must be somebody that you have to make a deal with. That, that he's not gonna be faithful to you unless you prove something to him. And out of this kind of foolish zeal, Jephthah made a vow. A vow that ended tragically. As the story goes on, verse 34, after God delivers his people Israel through Jephthah from the Ammonites, we're told that Jephthah came to his home in Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. So what happened? Jephthah made a foolish vow out of a wrong view of God, out of zeal and pride and arrogance, that if God would deliver him, then he would sacrifice as a burnt offering the first thing that greeted him. Now you think about even, what did he expect would greet him? An animal, a dog? Surely it would have been some human being, right? Well, who's the one that greeted him? His only child, his daughter. Notice what happens next. Verse 35, as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you've become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to the Lord, and do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months that I may go up and down the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. We're told that after he sent her away from two months, after they had been mourning and weeping, we're told that after in the two months, verse 39, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. 
So what happened? The answer to that question has been a difficult one for centuries. It's a difficult one because Jephthah is viewed as a hero, a deliverer of his people, as one of the judges. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, as we'll look at in just a minute, references Jephthah in the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. Jephthah was heralded as a hero. And yet what we're reading here is that he kept a vow to sacrifice the first thing that walked through the door. And we know that to be his daughter. So what happened in the end? For centuries, people have tried to get Jephthah off the hook. There's two options here. One is that he offered his daughter as a burnt offering to the Lord. The other is he found a way through it and a way around it. Now, as you read the story, there's a lot of natural reasons to believe if it says he kept the vow and his vow was to offer as a burnt offering to the Lord, then that's exactly what he did. But many theologians have tried, and there are reasons here that you could maybe, particularly all the stuff about her weeping for her virginity, that rather than offering as her burnt sacrifice, that he dedicated her as one of the virgins in the temple. And that he dedicated the rest of her life to service to God. And that would be a nice way to end the story, wouldn't it? My personal view is I think that is not the most natural reading of the text. It's a way to get Jephthah off the hook. And it sure feels better to us, that tension in us that says, what do we do with this? But I don't think that's what it says. The harsh reality is Jephthah made a vow, a foolish vow, and even more foolish, he kept it. It's just because you make a foolish vow doesn't mean you have to keep it. There are some vows that you make that you should have never made that you should break. And yet, Jephthah, in his foolishness, was a fool twice over. And I believe he sacrificed his daughter. And even more foolish, and what pains me to even imagine, is in his mind, he was doing it unto the Lord. And all the while, he was doing it unto himself. It's a tragic story question for us as we go to our tables is what do we do with that? What do we do with that? When a great hero of the Bible has something this heinous in their story, what do we do with the fact that the writer of Hebrews seems to say that this man, Jephthah, should be heralded along with the others in the hall of faith? And that's where we're going to end this morning. The last thing I want you to know, the Lord is the true judge. As Judges 12 turns the page and we get into the end of the story of Jephthah, another interesting thing happens. He's just fought the Ammonites, their enemies, and now Ephraim, that's part of Israel, comes knocking at the door. And they come and they pick a fight with Jephthah. Verse 1, they say, why did you cross over and fight the Ammonites and did not call us out to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. (laughs) What's happening here? Well, one of the tribes, one of the people of Israel, comes to Jephthah and says, hey, why didn't you ask us to go with you and to fight in a battle? 
Here you are getting all the glory. You didn't invite us. And to make the long story short, then Jephthah goes back to them and says, I did invite you. I called you, but you didn't answer. And then, of course, like very mature people, they get into war over it. And rather than settling their differences, what was a war between Israel and the Ammonites now has become a civil war. Internal conflict. And Jephthah, again, is at the center of it. What started out as a courageous man (laughs) ended so tragically. And as they're winning, uh, Jephthah and the Gileadites against the Ephraimites, there's a strange thing that happens. That as Ephraim begins to retreat, verse 5, the Gileads captured the forge of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, then say Shibboleth. And he said Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then they seized him and slaughtered him at the forge of the Jordan. And at that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. And we don't have time to get into what's going on in Jephthah's character that it not only lead him to make this foolish vow, but to not have the wisdom to think of another way through this conflict with Ephraim. But what I do want you to see is this strange word that's used, shibboleth. I wonder if you've ever heard this word used before. It's actually become something of a popular word that's come to mean a test, to test the nature of someone's true character, that they would have a shibboleth. First time I ever heard about this was by watching the show West Wing. Any West Wing fans? I've watched it probably five times over. Um, My wife and I love that show. And there's a part in that show in one of the episodes where it references this story and testing the nature of somebody's faith, them giving a shibboleth. What is the way to prove the true character of your faith? It's a shibboleth. Here in the story, it was simply a word. They couldn't pronounce it right. It wasn't part of their dialect. And so whenever they said shibboleth instead, they knew that they were an Ephraimite, and they put them to death. It's come to mean this idea that the true nature of character can only be found when somebody can be put to the test. And that test is called a shibboleth. And as we end the story of Jephthah, here's my question to you and to me. Well, what was his shibboleth? This man, we could look at back at his original origin story and see that he's the illegitimate son of a prostitute. Is that his shibboleth? Is that the true nature of a man? How they began? Or then we could look back at what he did, his courage and his valor, the way that he even did so as a faithful servant of the Lord, delivering the people of God. Is that his shibboleth? Well, if so, then for good reason, there's a great deal of tension that we have. And we see that in the end, that his shibboleth was sacrificing his daughter. A human sacrifice, which by the way, The Greek translation, the ancient Greek translation of the word burnt offering here is holocaust. It's where we get the word. He offered his daughter as a holocaust. It is heinous. It's wicked. It's foolish. Is that his shibboleth? Well, in the end, I think, in his own speech to the king of the Ammonites, Jephthah gives his shibboleth. 
and it's ours as well. I want you to go back, and this is where we're going to end, Judges 11, verse 27. As you turn there, notice what Jephthah said to the king of Ammon. I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong by making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. In the end, I think this is the true shibboleth. The true test of any man is actually not our resume. It's not the wicked things that we've done if we've done many. And as you wrestle with Jephthah's wickedness, and it is wicked, I want you to wrestle with your own wickedness and ask yourself, are you no different? And sure, you could say, well, of course I am. I would never sacrifice my daughter, and I believe that would be true. But until we see that our sin, whatever it is, even the sins we've already committed since we've been up today, are just as depraved and just as wicked. We don't see just how ungodly we truly are. And it's in that place of tension that we begin to see the grace and the wisdom of God. Because he alone is the true judge. And if there's anything that the book of Judges tells us, it's that every single human judge that God used to deliver his people was just as broken as you and me. And he did that not only to deliver his people, but to show us who the true deliverer is. The Lord, the judge. He alone is the true judge. He alone is the only righteous judge. And he alone is the judge who became judged for you and me. Because our judge, Jesus Christ, the one who one day will come to judge the living dead, our judge, Jesus, just like Jephthah's daughter, willingly gave himself up to be a sacrifice for you and for me. So that now our shibboleth is not the wicked things that we've done, nor is it the good things that we've done. But our, our shibboleth is the Lord, the judge, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself for our deliverance. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Lord, these things are hard, hard, hard for us to wrap our minds around. And I pray that as you be with these men and they wrestle with the story of Jephthah this morning, that you would help them wrestle. May we be honest about the Bible because the Bible is honest about you and it's honest about human sin. We're confronted that with that in the book of Judges time and time again and we are confronted that today in the story of Jephthah. And so Lord, as we see his story and we feel the tension between this man who's heralded as a hero and the wicked and heinous things that he did, help us to see that tension of the gospel in our own hearts that you, Jesus Christ, the judge, would be judged for us for our sin and for our wickedness so that we might be delivered too. Be with my brothers now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.